Hello, and you're listening to Mixed Feelings Radio. I'm your host, Kelsey, and this is a safe space for candid conversations about the mixed feelings we sometimes have about our own mixed experiences. In some ways, I started this project because of my father. I knew I wanted to do an episode about fatherhood, and I'm really proud of this one. It's my last interview of the season, and it's a really beautiful balance of heaviness and joy. When I first came up with this theme, I wrote about it in June of 2021. I recently found this piece in my drafts, and I thought I'd share it here with you in advance of my conversation with Greg. The funny and interesting part is that so much of what Greg brings up naturally, I've thought about and even put on paper in preparation for this episode over a year ago. Today, I speak with Greg about fatherhood and all the ways we were impacted by what a father does and doesn't do. Here's an unfinished piece I wrote about it all. Stay tuned at the end of our conversation for a brief debriefing. Enjoy. I never had a dad. I guess you could say I had a father, but I wouldn't consider him a father figure. If you know anything about my story, you know that my dad wasn't around when I was born. He has some of his own past traumas that prevented him from being fully present in my mom's pregnancy, my birth, and my upbringing. My first memory of meeting him was at a restaurant in the Carlingwood Mall in Ottawa. He brought me a stuffed animal, and my memory of the moment was that he was introduced to me as my mom's friend. My mom says that wasn't my first meeting with him, of course, and that he definitely wasn't introduced as her friend, but maybe my memory is protecting me from something. I never grew up thinking of dads. It was just my mom and I, and I never felt like I was lacking anything. My life felt normal, and the mother-daughter bond we had made up for any absence of a father figure. My mom's parents played a huge role in my upbringing, so I guess if anyone could be considered a father figure, it would be my grandpa. I've said this before, but growing up with a single mom and no siblings, I felt like we could really take on the world. It wasn't until I started considering my own heritage as a Chinese woman that I began considering the role of my father in my life. While on a fundamental level, I wouldn't change a thing, I do wonder what my life would have been like if I had a father, any father, my Chinese father. How would I be different? It's really hard to have these thoughts because there is no answer and it really just torments me if I think too hard about it. I've come to accept that I wasn't brought up with Chinese culture and I think maybe it was on purpose, for the greater good of my own growth. Now, as an adult, I have the wherewithal to ask the right questions and consider the answers thoughtfully and with grace and compassion. And only now, as an adult, can I consider forming an adult relationship with the father I never had. My father and I don't have the kind of relationship that fosters open dialogue about my upbringing, my heritage, his history, mine. But as an adult, I can make my own strides to begin bridging the gap with him. I don't really know where to start though. Our conversations are always uncomfortable, we never have much to talk about, and they leave me more drained than before. In this personal quest to find out more about my background, I bravely asked him to teach me Cantonese. This was a huge step for me. I mean like really big. 
The question was fraught with fear of rejection, discomfort, and shame. At the time, he told me Mandarin would be better to learn and that he didn't know it well enough to teach me. He said if I really wanted to learn Cantonese, he would definitely do it. He was just preoccupied with helping my half-sister move. This was hard for me. The child in me felt like I was never the priority and never would be. I had to consider that although I was ready to start bridging the gap, maybe he wasn't. He said he'd get in touch in June. June came and went, and just the other day he sent me a YouTube video to learn Cantonese. It's still really fresh, so I'm still working through these feelings of being rejected again by my father. My inner child is crying, but as a mostly fully formed adult, I have to think that maybe he wasn't ready. Maybe I'm not ready. Hi Greg, how are you doing today? I'm good. Today was a long day, so I'm a little bit tired, but I'm excited to kick it off with you. Cool. How are you feeling overall? Yeah, that's a that's a broad question. <laughs> I've got um, I've got a son on the way, and I'm a freelance designer, so you never know when the next meal is going to come from or where the next meal is going to come from. So, you know, there's a little bit of nervous anticipation and a little little bit of fear on the mm -hmm. cliff of things somewhat yeah i think that's to be expected and yeah he's coming soon too mm -hmm. yeah. two weeks just under two weeks i'm excited to meet him that's for sure same <laughs> okay you kind of kicked it off really well the topic we're going to talk about today is fatherhood mm -hmm. but i want to kind of go back into the idea of mixed feelings and kind of like how we connect after my first episode you texted me saying that after listening to it it felt like you were looking in a mirror so can you a little elaborate a little bit on that yeah, absolutely. I don't get a chance to to have these kinds of conversations that often. The sad reality of being biracial is that until things like this exist, you do kind of exist in between spaces. Mm -hmm. And you, you highlighted a, a lot of those points um, in the episode I listened to, whether it was feeling guilt that you don't necessarily identify with a certain experience or can't get behind a certain movement um, or just having mixed feelings about a subject, you know, those, those things really, mm -hmm. for me resonated. Like I, I, I can remember situations when I felt those exact same feelings. Mm -hmm. That's nice to hear. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's the main reason why I started this is to kind of open the door and also just like let people know that it's oddly a universal experience when you're mixed that like, it's okay to feel kind of weird about it. <laughs> Um, I think we all got, we kind of go through it thinking that we're the only ones that feel it. And then we realize that there's so many other people that can kind of relate. So yeah, and that's usually, that. that's usually how it goes on, on, on subjects that really sit below the surface mm -hmm. until you talk about them or mention them. You don't realize how many people are in the same position as you or feel the yeah. same things or think the same things. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Tell me about your experience growing up mixed and your relationship with your parents. Yeah, that's a, that's a heavy one. So I'm half Filipino, half African-American. I was raised by my Filipino family and mainly from my mother because my dad um, wasn't really present. And there's a long story, which we can save for another time about why he wasn't present. But suffice it to say that he really wasn't equipped to become a father. He didn't have the tools needed um, to do that kind of job. But growing up, surrounded by Filipinos in my home, but out in the world surrounded by majority white people, I didn't want to be Filipino, straight up. 
Really? Like there was two Egyptian kids and there was me and my sister out of, you know, a junior high to, I mean, I guess grade six to grade eight. Mm -hmm. Um, We were the only people of color, really. Really? Yeah. And so I wanted bologna and cheese sandwiches for lunch. I didn't like getting teased about my fish and rice. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't remember if there was any explicit conduct that, you know, or things that the kids, other, other kids did to me to make me feel less than or other. Actually, and as I say that, I can think about some bullying situations, but you just, I had the sense that I was different, you know, my sister as well. But then even within my Filipino family, we were, we got, you know, reading between the lines, we were also different. Yeah. We, we didn't identify or people didn't identify us as Filipino. We, we were young kids with nappy hair. So we just looked different. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at all the photos, we stand out. So not belonging with the primary culture that is raising you, but also not belonging in the culture that your parents are putting you into always felt like the odd one out. Where did you grow up? So when I was really young, my mom lived in the city, but then she moved us out to the suburbs, like actually Markham Ellesmere in Scarborough, then Midland Lawrence, a little further for the West. And then finally the house that i live in today which i took over from my mom which is at vic park in Danforth. so i've never technically i've never left scarborough but just moved further and further west in scarborough okay got you so all of that being said how do you identify now i don't (laughs) (laughs) okay that's okay yeah i i like and i apologize for how clumsy i'm going to be with my words here just because these are these are deep things that I haven't really thought about and definitely haven't spoken with anyone about. So yeah, please forgive me as I stumble through this, but stumble away. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I didn't feel like I identified as Filipino, um, especially since I had to bring my birth certificate when I went to go play Filipino basketball in the league I was in just to prove that I'm, I was allowed. No um, way. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. And we'll come back to that after, but, um, I don't necessarily identify as Filipino. I don't identify completely as black. I don't identify as a designer. And that's what I've been doing for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I don't really identify as a designer and I've kind of just accepted my reality of, of not necessarily fitting within any category, within any single category. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, in the, in the world of design, part of me identifies as black. So I was desperate to find other people of color working in the industry. And when I was in that situation, I identified more as black and wanted more black designers to be present. Mm -hmm. The Filipino side of me didn't really, wasn't really present because there was actually a lot of Filipinos in design. So I was like, oh, okay. But there was a part of me that felt like wasn't getting represented. Mm -hmm. So that lack of representation on that side of my, I guess my race made me identify more in that context as black. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I see that. So all all this to say, I just, I don't identify as Filipino or black or as a designer or as a ball player, but I can, I can identify with different aspects of all of those things. Do you think that that helps you in your professional work? Good question. I think... I think it gives me um, an outsider perspective to almost everything, which I think is helpful. It it's it's like a natural unbiasing of sorts. I hear that. Yeah, and not to say that like my judgment's not clouded because of course we all have our biases, but I feel like I could see I have a, a, a fresh perspective on almost every circle that I step into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounded when you were saying that it sounded like it would in some ways probably help your work having that outsider perspective and kind of using it to your benefit. But but I do I do see a lot of so from a creative perspective, 
I see a lot of artists who are able to tap into their their race, their culture, their history, and use that as a springboard for their artistic endeavors. Mm-hmm. I can't really, I, it's not to say I can't do it. I just haven't done it because I don't identify, right? So I'm not digging through my African-American background and, and trying to find something to jump off of. But I don't know. I feel like what you're doing right now is kind of, there is a springboard it's just not maybe like a mono thing because it is mixed. You're like mm-hmm. creating something now that is based on like the experience you've had, which is kind of all over the place. That's <laughs> yeah. What, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can, you could say that. I think maybe it's coming through more in, in the, uh, in the subconscious than the conscious maybe. Yeah, for sure. Into the fatherhood conversation, <laughs> mm-hmm. heavy stuff. Given your relationship with your father, What is your connection with your Black identity? You've kind of already talked about it, but elaborate on that. I would say my connection to that side, that part of me, is really tightly interwoven into what I got from the media. Mm -hmm. And that's good and bad. So I didn't have Filipino friends or Black friends until I left the neighborhood that I grew up in. All my friends were white. Mm-hmm. Everyone I knew was white until I got to high school. And then there was, it was in East York and there was brown people, there was black people, there were Italians, you know, it was a real, it was a real melting pot, which was cool. So up until then, I was trying to find what that connection was without my dad. So I was turning to music when my cousin put me onto it. Um, I was turning to, you know, much music, you know, our version of MTV to try to get a sense of it. And I definitely felt like through music and through um, streetwear brands, you know, like Pele Pele and Academics and LRG, I felt like I could connect with a lot of what was happening in that culture. So mm-hmm. that's what I held on to. And that, I guess you can say today for what I'm doing, I'm pulling a lot of inspiration from, you know, streetwear, street culture, fashion and hip hop mm-hmm. and R&B. But that was the limitation of my Black identity up until quite recent, to be honest, because I didn't dig into the history both Filipino mm-hmm. or African-American, Did, didn't dig in. But my sister, you know, she had a different path. She is visibly more Black than I am. Oh, okay. More so than me, She other people would identify her as Black. And so the world was telling her that she's Black. I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but she just has a more intimate connection with her Blackness mm-hmm. than I do. Because I'm kind of, if you saw me, you'd say that I could be racially ambiguous. Yeah. Like I could be cast as a Cuban guy or a Mexican dude. You know, if I shave my beard and grew my curls out, for example, like I I can transform. Um, So I'm a bit different. But recently, uh, I'd say in the last five years, I've started doing a little bit more reading, digging a little deeper, even with Carabana, like I was completely ignorant, like I was completely ignorant about what it represents and what it stood for, you know, just wasn't really that close to it. And it's a small thing, but that was like an enlightening thing that just happened this year. And it's 2022. You know what I mean? Yeah. How did you feel during the summer of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered and all of the protests were happening and the world was kind of on fire. I think the pandemic put enough weight on people's, mm-hmm. um, or let's say it it pushed everyone to the limit of what they can handle mentally before that even popped off. Um, but it, it was strange for me in that, let me back up for a second and talk about my wife who doesn't identify as French Canadian, <clears throat> but I identify her as French Canadian. You know, her parents are French, she's from Ottawa, yeah. she's, she's white. When when we had our daughter and our daughter came out like her coloring, like, you know, really light hair, really fair skin, as fair as it gets. I had these daydreams 
where, or um, not nightmares, the opposite, daymares, where I was worried about taking her to the park because yeah. I was worried about what people would think about someone like me with her. Because there's always this, there's this narrative of like scary black man attacking white women, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So there's this really insidious thought that I've had thinking about, you know, what are people going to do if my daughter starts flipping out at the park and I have to like, not discipline her, but like be firm with her. You know, are they going to feel like I'm stealing her or are they going to feel like I'm an abusive dad, like automatically paint me with that brush? Yeah. Um, so I was having those kinds of thoughts before the George Floyd thing popped off. And then when it did, I could empathize. I mean, I think anybody, any man of color can empathize with feeling insecure around police officers and daydreaming about what's the worst that could happen. Like literally getting beat to death is is it. And so <sighs> it's it's traumatizing to see. Cause it's not, it's not just a video on, on Instagram or on YouTube on whatever these, these clips, like they kind of rock me. And I would see yeah. clip after clip after clip to the point where like, I had to disconnect. Like I had to stop looking at it cause it was really triggering for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like in so many emotions, like it, it brought out the insecurities and the fear. Like I remember driving around the city and anytime I saw a cop, it felt like I had to look over my shoulder, even though yeah. logically there's no reason why I should be doing that. Did you do that growing up or was that, is that a new thing that you've kind of inherited? People don't always identify you as black, but sometimes they do. And when they, in, in certain places in Canada, when they do, like it's, yeah. it's not, it's not fun. There was an incident in high school. Mm-hmm. So I was like out of town. I was with some friends cottaging. We were we were just coming out of a bar and I, looking back at it, I feel like I was definitely profiled. Um, and and the, the officer was just kind of tempting me to do something. Like he wanted to fight mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And that was, the, I remember early on, like when I got into high school, that happened in like grade nine or 10. That really like primed me for the way I look at officers. Yeah. You know, for, for for a lot of non people of color, they're here to serve and protect. Yeah. Right. But for a man of color specifically, who sometimes can can be identified as black, it's you're not necessarily here to protect me. Yeah. And that doesn't when you have experiences like that, it doesn't really leave. Of course. It's almost like like you well, when you said that thing about it's always at the most inopportune times that you kind of are that person of color. You know, it's, it happens to be one of those worst times where you get profiled, but then it's kind of sometimes a benefit for you to be able to shapeshift. But I'm wondering, has it ever benefited you in some way? <laughs> There's definitely something about black men being perceived as extremely masculine, mm-hmm. which I think has worked in my favor. You know, whether it's the music or just the stereotype of the culture of hip-hop culture it's been recognized as homophobic right okay Mm -hmm. like it taught me to be homophobic interesting yeah like i would say i would use derogatory terms as a way to like break down other men Mm -hmm. right until i learned it wasn't it wasn't cool or until actually i learned that my cousin was gay and it was like i actually don't want to i don't mean that i I just i wouldn't want to do that to people but the culture itself has always been a certain way. And I, you can see it changing slowly still. You see rappers are like, no, I, I don't mind if they do what they do. That's cool. It's just, I'm over here doing my thing. So there's still like a, yeah. there's still like a, you're over there, I'm over here thing. It's not like that over the top anymore, but it's still there. Yeah. Okay, so another way it's benefited me is because of the shift in culture over the last 15 years, I'd say, rock and roll was like the thing that all our parents' parents listened to and it was rock set the tone for what was on the radio. It was like Mm -hmm. soft rock, what a pop rock, hard rock, whatever. It was rock and the rock was a thing. But in the last 10 years, I really feel like basketball and hip hop has has overtaken pop culture as the number one sport and the number one sound, whether it's hip hop or R&B. 
Um, in Toronto, at least, for sure. Yeah, and that kind of cultural shift also affects, or part of that shift, I would say, is people of color becoming old enough to hold leader leadership positions in companies. Mm -hmm. So for advertising agencies, let's say there's more people of color getting hired and becoming directors and having representation in commercials mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. bringing hip hop inspired music into commercials. And so in my opinion, what's happened is that has taken a culture that was traditionally looked on as lesser than. Like if you had big kinky hair, you were, you know, lesser than if, mm -hmm. if you listen to hip hop, you were lesser than it was maybe a bit of classist and racist thing going on. But when you had more representation, when you had more of the music in the media, I think that shifted what people's definitions of cool were mm -hmm. attractive. And so anyone who has a bit of that street swag who comes from that world of sports or music, I think everyone got to benefit, myself included, yeah. to the point where like a couple months ago, I had this big corporate exec, he, he reached out to me just to figure out how to connect with people like me mm -hmm. because he couldn't run a successful business or he was trying to run a business and he was seeing the numbers dwindle because his demographic was aging out and my demographic was aging in and he just had no idea how to get at us. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, like in basketball, it was like, oh, he's half black. That was definitely a thing. Interesting. Because playing basketball with a bunch of Filipino kids really young, and they're mm -hmm. like, he's half black. That's not fair. Get him out of here. Okay. Right? So there's this automatic, oh, like, you're black. You must be good at sport. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. must be good at basketball, which is so, so funny. <laughs> Do you feel like, though, that now in the communities that you roll in that are a little bit more diverse, that being half black gives you a leg up? Because you're like, now all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's half black. He might be really good. Like, let's put him on our team. <laughs> <laughs> no, any, any, if I'm being pulled on someone's team, it's because they know that I actually used to hoop for real. Got it. Yeah. Like it's, I don't think people are that ignorant anymore. Fair. <laughs> At least probably not the people you're hanging out with. But what so. was, yeah, what was really funny, and this is, I'm really aging myself here, but like I said, when I grew up, the Filipino community did not want to embrace me. Mm -hmm. It was like, I w it wasn't fair that I was black and that was the way they positioned it. Like I would get bullied on the court. People would like hit me in my ribs and shit, like yeah. on some on some really greasy basketball type shit. Okay, so that was then. And so I grew up Filipino, but not feeling Filipino or not feeling welcome enough. So then I then internalized that and was like, I'm not Filipino. Yeah. You know, so I'm not gonna speak it. And then now there's a couple Filipino NBA players, half Filipino, half black NBA players. And what you see is like the Filipino community raise up their flags and like take ownership over these guys. And I'm like one of the few people who were able to witness before and after. It's like, where was this love when I was coming around? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I also think it's interesting how close the Filipino community, at least in Toronto, is connected to the Black community now, at least. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of what seems to be kind of like, I want to say overlap in the cultures as far as like this streetwear is one thing. I think that there's like a huge... Mm -hmm contingency maybe if you want to use that word in like the filipino community that kind of borrows from black culture i think and i learned this about <clears throat> indigenous canadians i when i moved out to vancouver i played on an indigenous basketball team mm -hmm. interesting i learned a ton from those guys but what i learned about life on the res is that like indigenous natives in Canada and in the US are like super marginalized. Yeah. Hard to get drinking water, hard to get education, easy access to drugs and alcohol and guns and all this bullshit. Same way like it's in the hood. 
what these indigenous men connected with in terms of like African American hip hop black culture was the marginalization and the struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think what most people don't maybe there's not enough conversation about black culture because if you're in Toronto, you know that there's a difference between black Caribbeans, whether you're from Jamaica or Trinidad or Guyana versus African-American black culture. It's very different. When you say there's a lot of overlap with Filipinos and black people in Canada, I would say it's more like the African-American culture. Okay. I mean, you can challenge me on that. I'm I'm sure I'm going to get some hate comments here. But what I think the Filipino community also connects with, same with that indigenous group of guys that I hooped with, was the bravado, the attitude, and the feeling like if you grind hard, you can accomplish something. Mm-hmm. At least that's what my friends, my Filipino friends who listen to hip hop and are into streetwear, that's what they connect with. But facts like filipinos are all up in sneaker design like most people don't know this actually there's a lot of filipinos in the world of street street wear that hmm. don't get enough love the guys who ran and sold crooks and castles filipino guys the guy like the head designer at jordan brand filipino guy you know there's like there's That's like cool. filipinos in the culture like tastemakers that nobody really knows about um i wonder why i just don't think there's enough storytelling about it yeah maybe you can do that i mean there's a there's a group called rise tribe in toronto yeah Shout out to Rise Tribe. They uh, they shine a light on on the Filipinos um, pushing culture, pushing creativity. They actually reached out to me, but it never happened. And I suspect it's because I'm not full Filipino. <laughs> oh no way! I don't know. I think you'd be such a great voice for them. I love what they do. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think you being half Filipino it would be like a perfect addition to whatever they're doing. Your Rise Tribe. If you're listening to this, I'm, I'm open. And I've asked that question a lot before, but I like the answer, the perspective of the culture, how the visibility has kind of helped everybody, not just you. Yeah, it it really has. Like when you see, like, I was actually just thinking about this today because like I rock braids and for black culture, hair is a big deal. It's kind of sacred, but it's also functional. Like my hair is like longer than my shoulders now. And if I just let it out, it's gonna get tangled, it's gonna get knotted. And if I wanted to just wear it out, I could, and sometimes I do. But part of the reason why it's a sensitive subject is because if it's not straight and it's not shiny, it doesn't, it's not defined as healthy, right? And that's Mm -hmm. because of all the ways, you know, we've shown what healthy, good hair looks like, right? But they've never really shown good non-straight hair until the last like 10 years, right? That's all about representation. So our definitions of what even like what good hair looks like now has shifted. Mm -hmm, If you look mm -hmm. at young kids, they're growing their hair out. You know, they're not just getting braids and hiding it. They're growing their hair out. They're wearing big hair. Don't care. There's a lot of hair products for the next generation. And I love it. But before, if you wore your hair out or if you even grew your hair out, you were like a rug rat. It was like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to hire this guy. Like he's like uncouth, unkept. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's probably definitely massive in the male community. But I know with black women, it's like seen as unprofessional if you wear your, you know, quote, natural hair. That's right. And yeah. so that's why a lot of you see a lot of newscasters who have like straightened their hair, they flat iron their hair. Yeah. Um, you got to do what you got to do in order to in order to, you know, it's the matrix. As mm-hmm. long as you're living in the matrix, you got to play by the rules of the matrix until the rules start slightly changing. And they are slightly changing. Yeah, they are. There's a lot of bullshit that still happens, but. Yeah. So. Well, you mentioned the kids' books. I love seeing those books for kids celebrating their natural hair. Talking about your kids, what are your plans for talking to them about race? Hmm. Yeah, uh, you sent over uh, the questions for me to preview. And when I got to that one, I was like, man, I hadn't really thought about it. I don't know. Short answer is I don't know. Yeah, Um, fair. As I think about it, I probably, this is coming from the perspective of a biracial person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
I have to focus on values and principles. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, for example, find my tribe just based on the way they look and the way they behave because I don't have a tribe. Yeah. So the way I've found community in this world is is by people who have a, a shared set of values and principles. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter to me if you're black, Asian, white, you know, Indian, native, it doesn't matter. If you value hard work, if you value being humble, mm-hmm. you know, those are the things that I would teach my kids to look out for in building their their friend circle, not so much like white and black. Yeah, fair. Do you think that that has anything to do with how you think they might look? And I'll kind of give that a caveat is that last episode, I talked to my friend whose dad was Nigerian, who didn't really teach him a lot about being black and like didn't give him a lot of lessons about being black, but he looks black. And so he he never had those conversations about, you know, what to do when you're walking home at night or whatever, right? He never had those conversations. So I wonder if you prioritize values over the race conversation because maybe you you kind of assume what your kids look like or will look like or how they will identify we are so surprised by the way our daughter turned out like my mm-hmm. daughter is basically dirty blonde fair skin and blue eyed that was the last thing i thought my daughter was going to look like but basically i say that to say that i can't anticipate the way my kids are going to look at all mm-hmm. But to your point earlier about sticky situations that do involve race, I'll definitely have to have that conversation. But a lot of being a new parent is not knowing what conversations you need to have until you're like about to have them or, you know, they introduce themselves. Yeah. Did you ever have that conversation with your dad? I didn't have a lot of meaningful conversations with my dad. Fair. My dad, my dad is, um, he's got a lot of childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Growing up in the South Side of Chicago, Indiana, you know, one generation removed from Mississippi, you know, which is like some of the yeah. some of the worst shit. Yeah. And that trauma, you know, two or three generations still affect affected my family. Hundred percent, right? And that's something that I don't think I don't hear enough conversation about. I was mad at my dad for a long time, just like not being present. I was sad that I didn't have that male role model. Mm-hmm. My mom really struggled as like a poor Filipino raising two kids that didn't look like hers, where everyone thought she was the nanny. It, it was hard on her. So I kind of resented my dad for a long time for not just being there to support a tough situation. But then I learned through spending time with his mom. I was actually closer with my grandmother, his mom, than I was him. Oh, okay. And even my great-grandmother. So his grandmother, I was closer to. So I learned a lot about my dad's inability to be a functioning parent through them. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I've, I've learned to release a lot of that anger. I'm still left with a lot of pain, but once you know someone's story, it's hard to fault them for it. Yeah. You know, so my dad wasn't able to tap into his emotions, like just couldn't, there's too mm-hmm. much trauma there and to like, for him to like deal with. So whenever he was around, he couldn't, he couldn't go much. He couldn't go that deep. He was a, he was a tinkerer. He was a maker. So he would like, he would like make remote control cars and like make stuff. Mm-hmm. Was he in the household when you, when you grew up? He was in the household until I was around five. So I can definitely remember him being there. Yeah. And I can also remember not knowing why he wasn't there. Yeah. Was he still in the city after five? He was, he's still not far. Like I, yeah. like I lived my whole life in Toronto. He just lives in Hamilton. Got it. It's just, we don't have much of a relationship. Like there's not much common ground, you know? It's just like, yeah. I guess it's no different from, and I hear this a lot from, uh, let's just be blunt, white people 
who don't come from big families, who come from families of one or two, when they get together for Christmas, it's like kind of awkward with your cousins, even though you're your first cousins, like you don't really know them. You don't hang out with them. Whereas everyone I know comes from an immigrant family and everyone's got like 10 siblings. Yeah. And all cousins are like my, my, like seven cousins are like my siblings. Yeah. Like I grew up with them, saw them every weekend from the age I was born until, you know, pre COVID because COVID fucked up a lot of families, but visiting my dad is like feels like what i would imagine for white people visiting your cousins on christmas is like you don't know what to say it's just awkward it's like just head down eating it's like weird yeah no i can 100 percent relate to that (laughs) i think for me my dad my relationship with my dad is kind of the opposite where like you said there was a lack of kind of feelings for me when i see my dad it's like an abundance of feelings and i kind of can't handle it he doesn't also know how to deal with his feelings but that's how he deals right but i think maybe we'll have a conversation offline one day about this but i think that you and i have really similar relationships with our dads um Mm. very very similar so (laughs) from to put it bluntly from not really having a father figure in your life what did you learn about being a father i to be to be frank I, i don't I can't say that I learned anything directly from him, but Mm -hmm. I've learned a ton from his absence. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Like 100%. This is my second marriage. I was previously divorced. And in going through that divorce, it dusted up a bunch of trauma that I had never dealt with. I just tucked away in the back of my head and Mm -hmm. just said, that's cool. You chill there. And then all of a sudden I had to face it. So I was going through therapy. I was a very vigilant with my therapy sessions for about five years. Yeah. And what I was able to learn about myself through talking with a therapist really is about the absence of my dad and how that has left me ill-equipped in some ways to deal with, you know, what I, what I have to deal with, which transfers over to my wife and will eventually transfer over to my daughter. There's just no avoiding the, mm-hmm. the passage of trauma. Yeah. But seeing well-rounded people out there is is what I'm able to go like, oh, look at you. You're like handling this, you're handling that. And not to say I'm not handling it, but like I have my challenges, right? And those challenges yeah. come from my childhood, which include not having a dad. And when you have a dad, you don't have those challenges. You have different yeah. challenges, right? So seeing people without my challenges is like, oh, if I had a dad, I might not have these challenges. I might have different challenges. Mm-hmm. Maybe I prefer those challenges. And so with my daughter, I'm like super present. Yeah. I'm like super duper present. I'm just trying to be present. I mean, she's a baby, right? She's she's really young, but as she gets older, I'm going to become very aware of the way I'm present for her, not just being present. Yeah. Um, but again, I, most of what I learned from my dad is, is learning from his absence, not from him. Yeah. Again, I can relate to that. In my later years, the trauma that I'm kind of like working through with my therapist is like the abandonment issues that I have mm-hmm. from my dad that I didn't really even know I had because yeah. he was never in the picture, like from birth. So again, I was like, oh, this is easy. This is what I know. Having one mom is all I have and that's yeah. great. Yeah. But it's not until I start like digging deep and like you said, unpacking that baggage that I had stowed away that I realized that like it really fucked me up in deep ways that I didn't even know. Yeah, so. like I watched, I watched an interview where he was asked, the, the interviewee was asked a similar question. It was for Father's Day. And it was something along the lines of, you know, like, you know, what do you feel like you lo- you you lost by not having a father? Something like that. And he was like, he was like, no, to be honest, like, I can't say that I've lost anything. And I'm like, right there is his defense mechanism. Yeah. Right? Like pretending that not having something is not actually, it's not a loss when yeah. it is. Yeah. For the longest time, I always thought I, w- I was better off not having a dad. 
Mm-hmm. Because it was like, again, that was a defense mechanism for me to be like, I don't need you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking back again, like you have these scenarios where you look, think about it in your head, like, what would it have been like if I did? How yeah. would I be different? What would my life be like? For me, it's like, my mom was super, my, my mom's a superhero, first of all. I think any single mothers raising a kid to multiple kids with like very low, very little income, like they're all fucking superheroes straight up. Agreed. But my mom was hard ass on me. And she had to be because that's what, that's the way she needed to be in order to survive raising two kids. So I'm more in terms of my father being present. It's not just being present for me. It's like, how would my mom have been different? Because I've also inherited the trauma from my mom mm-hmm. who suffered from my na- my dad not being present. Yeah. Right? Deep. Goes deep. It, yeah. Yeah. So a father not being present is not just a one-to-one relationship. Yeah. There's a one-to-many. Yeah. For sure. Well, I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, that is true. So what is your personal role model for fatherhood? Oh, yeah. I, I love this question. I spent... And I didn't realize this until you sent me this question list, but like I spent majority of my adolescence searching for father figures out in the world. So I used to watch a lot of TV and movies. So you can imagine in the nineties, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, you know, like alpha male kind of leaders out there. Mm-hmm. So me being the, the Trekkie that I am, Jean-Luc Picard, who is mm-hmm. the, you know, the shining example of the perfect diplomat. I always aspired to be like him. I always wanted to be able to diffuse a situation as elegantly and as gracefully as he does. Mm-hmm. I'm like rewatching the series for like the third or fourth time. And it's it's mad cheesy, but there are lessons. Um, I looked up to Will Smith as like a big brother of how to, you know, how to be a funny, you know, char- charismatic dude that people like. Mm-hmm. There was a lot, like the list goes on. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's good, it's good to hear that you you were able to find it somewhere, at least. Yeah, my, my basketball yeah. coach, um, yeah. when I started playing rep ball, my basketball coach was an amazing guy. I like to hear that. So when it comes to being a girl dad versus a boy dad, do you think you'll do anything different? <laughs> it didn't dawn on me that I was doing something different than most people. I was talking to my cousin, and he was kind of like um, remarking about how outgoing and how much of a strong personality my daughter is. Oh, yeah. And then he saw me like playing with her and he commented on how like rough I am with her and I didn't real I didn't like again I, ra- I raised my daughter in the pandemic I never really saw anyone so I didn't take cues from any other parents I just did what I know to do and that's to be like a fun guy but I naturally am a physically fun guy so I would pick her up I'd throw her around like I would body slam her all the time and that's like you know part of how we bond she is fearless now and my cousin was like I could never treat my daughter the way you do He's just like, I feel like I'm going to break her. And I had that, I had this moment where I was like, oh shit, I guess this is in part why my daughter is the way she is because I am rough with her. I don't treat her like a delicate flower. And that's not because I consciously said, I don't want to treat my daughter like a delicate flower. It was just because that's, that's just me learning to parent. That's just how, how I found my groove, just roughhousing with her. Mm -hmm. But thinking about my son and now knowing that it's like, I might try to roughhouse with my son but he might not naturally take to it yeah it just so happened my daughter took to it and she loved it so i did it more yeah you know what i mean i'll just like pick her up off the ground throw my back and go run down the hall in my house if i try to do that with my son it, he might not have the temperament for it that's that's what's at the top of my mind right now when i think about how i'm going to raise my son it's just i have little learnings from my daughter what's fun about this whole process is like how it's impossible to predict what it's going to be like yeah 
you have all these intentions, but they all go out the window the minute, like when faced with the reality that like, no, he's a picky eater or like, no, he doesn't like to be roughed around. (laughs) Yeah. Is that fun or is that scary for you? Problem solving is fun for me. Yeah. I have a design mind. So problem solving is very fun for me. The scary, the scary part is just, it's a pandemic. Interest rates are rising. You know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> that's yeah. the scary part. But like when I, when I level out, I'm like, my mom did it with two kids on nothing. She set me up. Like I'm, I'm way ahead of where she is. And there's two, there's you know, me and my wife. Right. So uh, yeah, we're not single parents. So in my mind, there's almost no way we can lose. I think you're doing a good job as far as I can see. <laughs> Thank you. So, okay. So your relationship with your father though, I'm wondering, did that change at all when you became a father? I would, I would only say. Um, I have more remorse because I don't have time for him now. Like I, I may have had time for him and chose not to give him time, but literally the way my life is now, I don't have time for anybody. <laughs> yeah. I like my time's limited and to give someone I love the time when it's shitty is even hard on me. Yeah. Never mind trying to give time I have to someone I barely know. Yeah. I hear you. Um, I don't know. Maybe after this call, I'll, I'll think about it more and maybe invite him over to a barbecue where I don't have to, you know what I mean? Well, he was at your, he was at Dolly's first birthday, I remember. Yes, yes. How was that? Well, my dad comes out, there's never anything wrong. Nothing, nothing weird ever happens directly. Yeah, so it was, it was just like a guest at a party. Yeah. You know, he could, he could have been like an old co-worker of mine. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> that was the kind of feeling. But for me, it felt good for me to see him watching his granddaughter. Yeah. That felt good. A proud moment. Yeah, it's just, I don't know if he ever thought he would have that. Why? Because he didn't think that you'd have a kid or that he didn't have the relationship with you to be able to see it. I don't know if my dad, this is another difference of where my dad came, grew up and where I grew up. My dad grew up in a really shit environment where people die all the time. Like the Mm -hmm. South side of Chicago is not fucking around. I used to go there every year to visit his grandmother and stay with her. She would she would take me around and it was it was scary out there. Mm-hmm. And when she died, me, my sister, my dad all, all went out to Chicago and I had heard some stories from him that I hadn't heard before because he was just driving us around his old neighborhood. And this looks his old neighborhood looks like a war zone. Buildings look bombed and shit. He's like, Oh, I used to I used to play there, I used to park there. And then I found out one building there was like this awkward silence around this one block and I later found out like that was the orphanage that he grew up at. Oh fuck. Yeah, so my dad has got a really messed up childhood. So to the point where like I don't think he thought he was gonna have a kid, never mind be able to escape from Chicago and see his, you know, his grandchild. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's heavy, but I get that. Yeah. So, and my sister, my sister knows a lot more about it than I do. So I think she's got a lot, a lot more sympathy for him. It's just, it's different, I guess, between father and son. Maybe I just haven't worked out all my resentments yet. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's hard not to be resentful, I think. But as we get older, we kind of, like you said, we can empathize a little bit more. But I don't, I don't know if it ever goes away. Like I, as I'm learning this, it's like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to like fully resolve it and pack it away and be like, good job, well done, we're all finished. Yeah, no, I randomly scrolling on Instagram, came across a video of a, of a coach, this woman talking to her basketball team in the dressing room. And she said, life doesn't get easier. If you're waiting for life to get easier, like you're gonna be waiting forever. What happens is you just get better at dealing with all the bullshit. Yeah. And that really hit me because I was like, that's what adulting feels like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just used to juggling. You're just used to having to do all the bullshit. So like you said, it doesn't go away. You just get better at dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm trying, trying to get better. Yeah, there's, there's perfection doesn't exist, but yeah, you get pretty close. Um, okay, so now that we've talked about these mixed feelings overall, who do you think you might have this conversation with next? Oh man, yeah, there's a couple guys that I'm hooping with every Sunday that I know could like me sit at the are racially ambiguous mm-hmm. who can shapeshift. I like that word shapeshift. Who I know don't aren't getting a chance to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's there's to be honest, they're just I don't want to sound like so whenever there's these social justice movements that are happening, there's always a group of people who are like, but us too. Yeah. You know, it's like not just them, but us too. And I don't want to be an us too person. But I do think that at some point, somebody ought to focus on the people falling between the cracks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, mixed culture is becoming way more like, if you want to use the word mainstream, I don't know. It's really, it's quite common to like meet people who are mixed and have these kind of weird feelings about like where they fit and how they identify. And so these conversations need to be happening more with like more people that are not just mixed. This is my opinion, but I think we need to be having conversations like this with our white friends and like, you know, I'm definitely having more of these conversations with my mom, who is my white parent, because she never thought of any of this. So as you said, we should have these conversations with our right white friends. It made me, so back to your question, what advantage do you have from being mixed race or whatever? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of white people don't um, identify me as black. I have friends who have confided in me questions, comments that are racist. Yeah not realizing that part of me identifies and can be can be like yo that's racist yeah so historically i've had people say lots of racist shit to me not about me but confiding in me i've had a, actually more exposure to white supremacy than a lot of people of color yeah just because you kind of fall between the cracks but that's what i would say is, has been an advantage of my experience is that like when i'm hearing these opposing sides of political perspectives and social perspectives i'm like you guys are literally fighting about the same thing like there's black people who have been fighting about being marginalized forever but white people you're beating the same drum right now you like don't yeah. want your culture to die so you have more in common with black people now than ever. It's like now's the time to bridge the fucking gap. <laughs> so I, I find it hard to answer that question of who I'm going to have this conversation with just because naturally I'm not like a, a talker. Like I don't do interviews often. I don't write about my thoughts that often. I have in the past, but it's mostly been related to my work. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence. Like historically, whenever something's been bothering me, I've usually just bit my tongue so that I can digest it a bit more. Mm -hmm. And then what usually happens is I get busy and I don't talk about it again. Yeah. I think now that I'm having these conversations with you, when those moments happen, I'm less likely to bite my tongue because it's probably more important that they happen. Yeah. To your point, not just speaking to other biracial people or people of color, but giving perspective to white folks or black folks or Filipino folks. Thank you for sharing so much with me. It was really insightful. I feel like I know you better, but I do think that we need to have some offline conversations about our dads. Um, But overall, thanks. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about these things and and taking the topics that have been bubbling in my subconscious and make them real and bring them to the forefront of my mind so I can actually think about them and maybe even talk about them with others. Mm -hmm. Cool. I'm glad to uh, start stirring that little pot for you. There we go. But yeah, so hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, 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 what a conversation that was. I'm not entirely sure where to begin. In some ways, how fitting is it that this is our last conversation of the season? 
If you've tuned into our previous episodes, you will hear callbacks to previous ones like my conversation with Will about representation, my conversation with Armand about being an undercover POC, or my conversation with John about the masculinization of black men. I loved this conversation with Greg, not just because it was so wide ranging, but I had never spoken with Greg about these topics. On a personal level, I'm getting more comfortable having these conversations as well, and I think it shows in how they unfold. The truth is, there isn't much to debrief here, but I will mention a few things. The first was how Greg identified himself as African American. I think it's important to note that not all people who are black have known roots in Africa, so you can't wash all black people with the term African American. As Greg mentioned, a large population of black Torontonians are actually Caribbean. I think here of using the proper terminology when you know it. For example, saying Chinese instead of Asian, or African American instead of black, and using someone's pronouns correctly. Obviously, we're all learning and we're all works in progress, but Greg's use of African American is intentional. And he tells you where he's from, if you're really listening. I also loved Greg's enthusiasm about the question of benefit. I always ask if how you identify has benefited you. The majority of my friends and guests have spoken from the singular perspective. While there are no right or wrong answers, Greg had a bigger picture in mind of how black culture in general has benefited him and his communities. It was a refreshing perspective. There is one point of correction I'd like to make, and I'm not even sure where to start with it. I don't think I was wrong to say it, but I generalized and I'd like to make a note about it. When Greg and I are talking about black hair in the professional world, I distill the problem black women around the workforce have to just news anchors. Now, we know that's not true. We see it in celebrity culture and in the way middle management may tell a black woman her hair looks messy in retail, hospitality, or the boardroom. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend who said that they preferred black men because they took better care of themselves, in her experience. And while I can't argue against her experience, I did explain to her that the reason this is the case is because people of color are often held to a higher standard of hygiene than others. Often people of color are stigmatized as the unkempt black woman or the smelly brown guy. I know these are harsh to hear, but these are common stereotypes and they're harmful. I'm not one for lessons, that's not why I started this, but the one thing I can reiterate from my conversation with Greg is that black hair is sacred, and in a lot of cases, it carries trauma. Don't touch it, don't comment on it, it's just not your place. And to be honest, I was worried about even talking about it here in my debrief. Is it my place? Speaking of trauma, the most insightful part of our conversation was on the topic of trauma. The passage of trauma is not a one-to-one relationship, it's a one-to-many. This really got me thinking about the relationships in my life, romantic, platonic, and professional, and how the absence of a father has impacted my life in so many ways, both macro and micro. Lastly, in my own efforts to be more inclusive, I'd like to call attention to my use of the terms girl dad and boy dad. While many people may find relation to these terms, they are not fully inclusive. All in all, fatherhood can be a touchy subject for some. It is for me. This conversation was a first. 
a first for Mixed Feelings Radio, but also for Greg and I. What I'm proud of is being able to set the stage for people to open up about their mixed feelings. And hopefully the stage is set for people at home who may share these feelings, or maybe the conversation starts a dialogue with the people in your own life. Either way, this has been Mixed Feelings Radio. I'm your host, Kelsey, signing off. Please make sure to subscribe, write, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for feeling with me.